Welcome to the Rebel at Large Adventure Podcast. I'm Drifter. And I'm Gypsy. Talking about ghost towns, graveyards, outlaws, heroes, and ladies of the night. Howdy folks. Thank you for joining us for yet another adventure. Today we are going to share with you the history we've been able to gather about the historic Rock Creek Station and Stricker home site in southern Idaho and why we wanted to visit the haunted location. Before we get into our trip, we want to give you some back history of the area and what started it. So our story begins with a Mr. Benjamin Holiday. Ben was born on October 14th or October 19th. We've seen both dates. Yeah. The year was 1819 in Nicholas County, Kentucky. At a young age, he would work with his father, William, helping him lead wagon trains through the Cumberland Gap. And this was the start of a very successful future for our little Ben. He left home in his teens to travel the Santa Fe Trail. He eventually ended up in Weston, Missouri, where he worked as a store clerk. In 1838, he served as a courier during the Mormon War for the state militia working for General Alexander Donovan. The general refused to carry out orders to kill the Mormons, and this would help Ben in his later years. In 1840, he opened a tavern and hotel in Weston, Missouri. In 1856, he became involved in the McCormick Distilling Company, also in Weston. And a fun fact, the distillery still operates today and claims to be the oldest distillery west of the Mississippi River that operates in its original location. Kind of cool. They offer a wide variety of liquors, but some of the more well-known ones are Tequila Rose, yuck, (laughs) Uh, Triple Crown Whiskey, Burker's Gin, and 360 Vodka. They're not a sponsor, but if you guys hear this, you could be. Yeah, I wouldn't be be mad about it. He also became the first postmaster of Weston. Ben became a vital role during the Mexican-American War in 1846 when he made an agreement with General Stephen Watts Kearney to supply wagons and essentials to the U.S. Army. After the war, he continued to work in the transportation business and began to take supplies to Salt Lake City, Utah, where he sold them to the pioneers traveling west. When the gold rush in California took off, Ben decided to stay out west. He moved to the Bay Area in 1852 and started to transport people along the trails as well as supplies. Things really began to take off for Ben when he partnered with the staging firm of Russell, Majors, and Waddell. In 1862, he gained control of Central Overland, California and Pikes Peak Express Company, and with that, it's 1,200 miles of stage lines. Because of the friendship he developed with Brigham Young during the Mormon War, he won the postal contract for mail service to Salt Lake City. He then got to work establishing the Overland Stage Route along the Overland Trail. By 1866, Ben had expanded the trail to extend from Atchison, Kansas, to Denver, Colorado, to Salt Lake City, Utah. He had several stations along the route, a large fleet of stagecoaches totaling around 20,000, and he employed more than 15,000 people. He was making roughly $60,000 a month in passenger revenues. Which is just over a million bucks a month in today's coin. Yeah, that's a lot. Mm. Just for giving somebody a ride. Uber ain't got nothing on you. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Also, in five years that he ran the mail service, the U.S. Post Office had paid him nearly $2 million. Which would be over 34 million bucks today. Yeah. That's a healthy sum. 
I don't think the postmen make that much money this in today's money. Probably not. Oh. So Ben, being the savvy businessman that he was, knew the completion of the rail line would eliminate the need for stage stops. Look pretty forward thinking here. Mm -hmm. On November 1st, 1866, he sold his route, the equipment, and the contracts to Wells Fargo for 1.5 million bucks in cash. That's over $25 million today. Yeah, as well as $300,000 worth of Wells Fargo and Company stock. Which is over $5 million. As well as he got some other perks in there that weren't really listed. Yeah. The Overland Mail continued for a few more years until the completion of the railroad in 1869. Now, they would just place the mail on the train. They no longer needed the stagecoaches to transport it. We kind of did the math earlier, and it was like he made, in today's money, like $60 million or something like that, huh? Yeah. yeah. That's insane. Yeah, it's crazy. Uh, well, after selling his company, he moved to Oregon to work his way into the railroad business. Again, forward thinking. Mm -hmm. uh, he had a goal to build a rail line to California along the east side of the Wallamette River. He was able to win a federal subsidy by paying around $55,000 in bribe money. Which is about a million bucks today. In 1870, his dream came true, and he was able to build the Oregon and California Railroad as far south as Roseburg, Oregon. Well, despite Ben's investments, which included two hotels, his horse car line that connected the ferry with downtown Portland, and the Oregon Steamship Company, he lost most of his fortune in the stock market collapse in September of 1873. By 1876, he was behind on his payments, and the railroad was taken over by his financiers. He spent the last years of his life in court battling lawsuits. He passed away in Portland on July 8, 1887, at the age of 67. He was laid to rest at the Mount Calvary Cemetery in Portland, Oregon. So Ben had been married twice. He and Notley Ann Calvert were married on December 31st, 1839. The two of them had seven children. And I just think it's kind of fun, so I put this in there, that Jenny Lid Mary, their fifth child, married Arthur de Portales on December 6th, 1869, making her European royalty. And then Pauline, their sixth child, married Baron Henry Renaud de Passant on January 22nd. 1873, also making her European royalty. Kind of funny, has royal family now. Yeah. Uh, Notley passed away on September 18th, 1873, at the age of 57. He married again to Lydia Esther Campbell on July 8th, 1877. Lydia only lived two years after Ben passed away and was laid to rest next to him. So during his time working the Overland Trail, Ben hired two brothers. Charles and William Trotter, to scout out an area to build a stage stop. They suggested two different locations, one near the Twin Sisters at the City of Rocks and another at Rock Creek. Charles and his wife Irene ran the Rock Creek station while Bill and his wife ran the City of Rocks station. Ben was not the first person to inhabit the area. Prior to him, the Native Americans used it for a campsite because of the lush willow bottoms of Rock Creek. Historian Robert Stewart camped in the area from August 28th through the 29th in 1812 on his trek from Astoria to St. Louis, in which he pioneered what would become the Oregon Trail. So stage stations like this were very important to have along the trail because they could get fresh horses and this allowed them to travel faster. It also provided a place for the travelers to rest so they didn't have to sleep in an exposed area along the trail. 
Some of the stagecoach stops along the way would have stores for passers-by to purchase or trade for supplies. They were a very vital part of travel while the West was being established. That was where, like, the fur trappers would have gone and traded the supplies, right? Mm-hmm. Things like this? Yep. Okay. Uh, Rock Creek became a home station where drivers and attendants lived while they were off-duty. The original station consisted of a lava rock building that served as a hotel and barn. On July 12, 1876, W.A. Gowler wrote in his journal about the area saying, quote, The Northwest Stage Company, carrying the United States Mail, Wells Fargo's Express, and a large and constantly increasing passenger list. The stage arrived at Rock Creek about 8 o'clock, where an excellent breakfast was awaiting the hungry wayfarers. Charles and Irene Trotter kept the house there, and he and his estimable wife spared no pains in their effort to make this a desirable resting place. Thank you. Thank you. In 1865, James Bascombe built a Rock Creek store next to the station. For a short time, the store was the only trading post of the Oregon Trail between Fort Hall and Fort Boise. It was constructed of native logs and served as a store, club, saloon, and lunchroom for many hundreds of travelers. Over time, the area became a town with 146 folks living in the greater Rock Creek area. They built a post office in 1871 and eventually a school in 1878. James Iverson published a letter about the area saying, In this land of eternal sunshine lies opportunity for all in a healthy, giving climate unequaled anywhere. John F. Hansen read this and in 1876 moved to the area where he opened a store. In 1905, a town site was being surveyed along the railroad. The investors made Mr. Hansen an offer he could not refuse. If he would move his store from Rock Creek to the new town six miles north, they would name the town after him. So that's what he did. Yeah, why not? I would do it. So the same year, being 1876, a German immigrant named Hermann Stricker bought the store from Bascombe and began running it. He found love when in 1880, Lucy, who was the sister of Irene Trotter, came to visit her. The two were married by a justice of the peace two years later in Oakley, Idaho. So Hermann was born in the Kingdom of Hanover, Germany on March 12, 1841. He came to the United States in 1856 at the age of 15. He worked as a store clerk in Ohio until April 15, 1861, when he enlisted in the Civil War. After he was honorably discharged in 1865, he began traveling and working odd jobs. He sold goods along the Union Pacific Railroad because they just had little towns that they would move along with the railroad as they built them, right? Mm -hmm. So he'd just kind of travel along, I'm guessing, and selling them supplies. He transported goods from state to state before eventually landing in Rock Creek. Herman and Lucy operated the store until it closed in 1897. So the two of them didn't just run the store. They also made improvements to the area by adding a bar on the north end of the store to sell liquor to the cowboys. He built what he called a China house where he would sell opium to the Chinese miners and established a small cemetery on the property. They also homesteaded the land, and at one point, they had about 960 acres that were used for grazing and raising cattle. So the China house is gone, right? Yeah. And it just has a sign there. It shows you the location of where mm-hmm. it was, yeah. Um, Herman and Lucy had seven children, and the oldest being born in 1883. So they, they quickly had a baby. Mm-hmm. In 1900, their daughter Blythe 
accidentally set the family cabin on fire. Lucy was able to drag their bulky wooden bedstand from the burning house, and the bed still resides in the Schreiger family mansion. Kind of cool. Yeah. Well, Herman got to work at building the family a new house called the Stricker Mansion. They would rent out rooms in the house to passers-by, and Lucy was also known to nurse many sick travelers back to health in the house. Those that Lucy was not able to save were planted in the cemetery on the property. Herman lived to be 79 years old and passed away at the house on March 20, 1920. Lucy stayed living at the house for another 29 years. She never remarried and also passed away at the house at the age of 89 on February 4, 1949. A third Stricker family member passed away at the house as well, and his name was W. Pro Stricker. I thought that was kind of a fun name. Yeah, Pro Stricker. <laughs> and he was their fourth child and their third son. He passed away at the age of two on April 27, 1893. The Rock Creek Station and the Stricker House are on the National Register of Historic Places and are located about 20 miles south from Twin Falls, Idaho. We stopped on our way back from Twin Falls to pay the site a visit. We mostly stopped because there are several stories about this house being haunted, as well as the land around it. We also wanted to see the small cemetery that's there. If there's a cemetery, we often stop. Yeah, so, and a ghost town. <laughs> you know, so once we got there, we realized there's so much more to see and vowed to take a trip back so that we can go inside the house. COVID kept us from seeing more than what we could see through the windows. Mm-hmm. Uh, The area set up as kind of an open-air museum with signs for the buildings that remain as well as signs showing where buildings once stood. So just like we mentioned with the China House. Mm -hmm. Uh, They do tours of the house, but you'll need to kind of check online and see when they're doing the tours. Uh, We just looked, and right now they're only doing them on Sundays. Yeah, and it's like weird hours too. I want to say it's like 11 to 5 or something like that. Mm -hmm. Um, We did a self-guided tour as we were the only ones around. Everything is pretty well labeled and even numbered to give you a good start to your Mm self-tour. We found a good break before looping back to the house and set off for the cemetery. We'll touch on the cemetery here in a minute. There's a pretty well-worn trail heading to the site. Along that trail, it kind of nears a river, and there happened to be some deer in there that we (laughs) roused a bit, and it scared the living shit out of Gypsy. (laughs) Oh, yeah. I was done. I'm like, this place really is haunted. It was just under a tree and she started booking it. (laughs) I remember I ran back to you and I was like, we got to go. Yeah. Like it's just a deer. No, it's not. I can still hear it. It's moving. (laughs) I can see it. (laughs) Yeah. That was crazy. Yeah. Well, it timed out that the sun was setting as we were exploring and it made some for some really beautiful pictures of the headstones. Yeah. Yeah, I'll post some of them up on the website. We then worked our way back to the site and the house itself before heading out. So stories say that the house is haunted by Mrs. Stricker herself and has even been known to help out the watchman, Mr. Gary Guy. Once when he was sleeping, she woke him up to alert him of trespassers on the property. He also tells about his dog waking him up to a young girl wearing a white dress. The gal never speaks but disappears into thin air as soon as he turns away. Visitors have also witnessed ghostly figures running through the field as well as inside the cemetery. Yeah, you thought you did. (laughs) The ghostly deer. (laughs) They've also seen doors open on their own to one of the cabins as well as lights flickering inside when no one was there. 
The craziest story about the house being haunted and the story that intrigued us was centered around a stain on the staircase leading from upstairs to the parlor room downstairs. After Lucy passed away, her daughter Gladys lived in the house until the mid-70s. The house sat vacant for 10 years before the family donated it to the Friends of Stricker. During that time, kids would break into the house to see the blood stain and do seances. Mm. The story got around that Lucy took an axe to Herman's body, striking him 40 times. She then dragged his body from their bedroom and down the staircase. And that's where the stain comes from. The story's not true, though. Oh. Herman passed away in his sleep, but it still makes for a pretty good campfire story, right? Yeah, not even original. It was uh, the Lizzie Borden one, the poem of Lizzie Borden, Killed Her Dad 40 Wax with an Axe. Oh, yeah. So. Yeah, well, that definitely makes it very hard to believe that to be true. (laughs) Yeah. So creative kids were back then. Yeah, good job. (laughs) <laughs> well, the cemetery itself is about 400 yards from the house, and it's, it's a pretty easy walk. Like we said, there's a pretty clear trail leading the way. Mm-hmm. Uh, inside the fences of the cemetery, there's eight folks with markers laid to rest there, possibly more. The remaining markers are wooden and no longer bear the names of their residents or anything else. Yeah. <laughs> so it's just wooden markers, and most of them are in pretty good shape. One I recall was split pretty bad, but the rest of them are still of a natural or original shape that would yeah. use. Well, they have that big plaque there, that big cement plaque mm-hmm. that has the names of them on there. But like each mound doesn't tell you who is in there specifically. Right. Well, the first person that was buried there was in 1874. His name is J.R. McNair. He was working as a freighter and happened to be crushed between his wagons on the hill just north of the cemetery. Uh, That same year, Huey Quinn, who did not carry a gun, was murdered at the store and placed in the cemetery as well. William Doddle was the most colorful character buried in the cemetery. The story goes that he came to Rock Creek in 1875 to sell a horse. Bill Trotter and E.B. Wilson noticed the horse belonged to someone else, so the two men placed him under arrest and put him in the cellar behind the store which you can still see on the walking tour. Yeah, you can actually go down into it. Yeah, I don't think I did. I think I walked down the stairs and stopped, but you went all the way in. Yeah, I went into it. The video was pretty dim because I was just using a gimbal at the time. I was trying to learn how to use the gimbal at the time. Yeah, I think that was like the first time, right? (laughs) Yeah, yeah, it was that weekend. But yeah, it's pretty cool. Pretty Mm -hmm. cool spot. Yeah, so they placed him in this cellar and they waited for the authorities to arrive. And as he was in there, the town folk would walk by and tease him for being locked up and call him Doddle Bill. Doddle was eventually convicted of grand larceny based on Trotter's testimony and sentenced to two years in Idaho's territorial prison. Well, Doddle spent his time in jail a little upset over the arrest and plotting his revenge against Trotter and Wilson, saying, The streets will run red with their blood. He was released in 1877 and supposedly returned to Rock Creek looking for trouble. By this time, however, Wilson had left Rock Creek and Trotter was in bed with typhoid fever. Doddle, being upset that he could not kill him, went to the bar and began drinking. He then became bored and went to the wagon trail in front of the store and started firing shots off at folks. That'll cure boredom any day. (laughs) (laughs) I'm drunk and bored. Let's just start shooting them up. The cowboys did that in Tombstone, remember? Yeah, that's what they did in the Tombstone movie. Oh, that's not real? <laughs> I don't I don't know. Those, <laughs> those bullets usually come back down when they shoot them <laughs> off in the air. So, 
I don't know. Well, one of the shots wounded the blacksmith, and another hit the doorframe of the striker's store. Just inside the doorway stood Trotter's young brother-in-law, Charlie Walgamont. He was worried Doddle would harm more people, so he pulled out his revolver and shot Doddle Bill in the heart. Doddle Bill's body was then paraded around the town for everyone to see. Travelers waiting in a stagecoach were disgusted at the barbaric scene. I couldn't imagine passing through this town and they're just carrying around this dead body. Yeah, it was like a dog carrying around a bird they just caught. Yeah, we gotta get out of here, guys. <laughs> he was eventually buried in the cemetery and laid in peace until some 20 years later when his remains were dug up to be placed in a private bone collection. After objections, his body was returned. Well, everything but his skull was returned. You don't need that part. Yeah. Another skull story we share with you. Right? Mm -hmm. uh, his skull, which has a bullet hole in it, went on display at a local school and has since gone missing. I know where it is. You do? Yeah. Well, don't tell me. Uh, but Wagamon claimed to have shot him in the heart, not the head, right? Well, yeah. So yeah. people are now wondering if Wagamon's story is correct or if they dug up the wrong body and the skull actually belongs to Huey Quinn. It belongs to Huey. <laughs> well, in 1878, an immigrant girl whose name is unknown was placed in the cemetery. Then in 1884, a gypsy woman. Me? I'm gypsy. Oh, well, this gal's name was not known. Oh, okay. Huh. And she passed away along the trail back in 1884, so probably not you. The male, maybe. Maybe I'm reincarcerated. <laughs> reincarcerated, yeah, we probably are. Well, she was buried there. Miss <laughs> um, Henry Snyder, who kept a restaurant in town, also passed away in 1893 and was laid to rest in the same cemetery. The last burial in the cemetery was in 1897, that of another immigrant child whose name is unknown. There are several other burials around the area, but the locations of them have since been lost to time. Yeah, and also the two Stricker, the mom and dad, hmm. Herman and Lucy, they're not buried in the cemetery. Yeah, they're on the property we've read, right? No, remember they were in the little cemetery in town and we oh, didn't go to it. That's right, yeah. It's not far from there. And then one of their children is buried in the property. That's the one I was thinking of. Yeah, so he's not in the cemetery, but he's in the property. Probably just on a nice tree, you know, mm -hmm. a nice hill under a tree somewhere they like to go picnic or something, I yep. think. Because that was pretty common back then, right? You would mm -hmm. just have like a family burial. Yeah. Yeah. I would be so crazy if you bought like an old farmhouse and there's like the family burial plot there. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I think it happens quite a bit. Really? Yeah. Oh my gosh. Well, when we stopped by the Rock Creek to explore the Sugar Ranch, it was during COVID, like we said. So there were no, no tours going on at the time. The friends of the Sugar Ranch took this time to update the area by adding a really beautiful pavilion and updating the signs that give you a lot more information about the area. They have since opened the house back up for tours, but again, check their website for when the, when's everything happening. And all of the information can be found at friendsofstricker.org. 
And you can also find information about events that they are doing to raise money. And you were showing me on their website that they have a new tour guiding training. There's a young yeah. man there, so you might get to help this kid out. That would be fun. Mm-hmm. Uh, some of the events that they had listed on there that looked kind of fun was a spaghetti western dinner event. Ultimately, it's a spaghetti dinner, but that's yeah. fun. <laughs> yeah, they, you played like a game of Clue at the ranch, and then you got dinner. Yeah. Uh, they do night tours and a Halloween event called Stricker After Dark. Uh, I'll link their page on the show notes and on our website. But they had yes. a picture of like a clown under the pavilion at night. Mm-hmm. Looked kind of fun. I bet they do a fun job out there. Yeah, we won't be able to go this year. but Yeah, we'll be way too far south at that time. But... <laughs> Maybe next year. Yeah, mayhap. <laughs> um, on our way home from the ranch, we actually took a little bit of a detour and drove the back roads to stop at the Samaria Cemetery. Today, the town of Samaria is just mostly farming with no highway passing through, and it is located on the southwest corner of Malad Valley. At the start of the town, it was the largest town within Malad Valley, but when the railroad decided to go through Malad instead of Samaria, things changed, kind of like Route 66 bypassing everything. Mm-hmm. The town name came from Lorenzo Snow. He was so impressed by the hospitality of the folks and said they were indeed, quote, good Samaritans. And he named the town Samaria. We stopped to see the unique headstone belonging to Benjamin Waldron. And we never got the chance to talk to Ben because he passed away in 1914. But we think he might have had a pretty good sense of humor given the story of his headstone. Yeah. So the fall of 1878, when Ben was 25, he was out harvesting the farm with a horsepower thresher. Somehow, his leg was caught in one of the rods and was severely injured. One of his relatives, Nat Waldron, said, quote, They hooked up a team of horses to a wagon and rushed them to Logan, Utah, as fast as those horses could run. So I took Nat to be short for Natalie. <laughs> I think... Maybe. Uh, Okay. Either way. (laughs) Well, (laughs) the doctors were unsure if Ben would make it due to all the blood loss and the severity of his leg injury. Eventually, they decided there was no way to save the leg and it'd have to be cut off. After the surgery, Ben asked if he could keep the leg and have it buried in the Samaria Cemetery. Natural. So the burial (laughs) plot... This happened, so <laughs> he got he got his wish. They were like, okay, I sure. guess. We don't have to dispose of it. That's fine. I was just going to throw it out the window, but. Yeah, cremated something. <laughs> anyway, his burial plot for the leg is marked with its own headstone, and it bears the engraving, just this really cool bent leg cut off above the knee. Yep. And the inscription on it reads, B.W., October 30th, 1878. <laughs> his leg died on the day before Halloween. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, The story continues on that weeks after the leg was buried, Ben was in in excruciating pain. He insisted the leg was twisted in the grave and that this was the cause for his pain. Finally, the leg was dug up and to their surprise, the leg was buried in a twisted manner. (laughs) They straightened the leg out and reburied it and Ben was able to finally get some relief and live a productive life where he actually went into business with W.E. Hawkins under the name of Hawkins and Waldron. They eventually sold the business, and Ben continued on with his education at Brigham Young College in Logan. In 1886, he went into business for himself and opened a small log building selling supplies. 
He was so successful at this that he was able to build a two-story brick building. He also operated a livery stable, butcher shop, ice house, and a two-story brick hotel. Ben passed away on April 13, 1914, and was laid to rest in the same cemetery his leg is at, but they're actually at opposite ends of the cemetery. We yeah. thought that was kind of interesting. Yeah, it was quite a ways away from the leg. I wonder what kind of casket they used for his leg, too. Or if they would have put it in one. Yeah, I don't know. <laughs> Thinking like a child-sized casket or a pet casket or something. Yeah. That's interesting. We never read anything about his casket, so who knows if they used one. He got half price on his casket for his leg. <laughs> Good God. <laughs> <laughs> So the that brick, just came to me too. Yeah, that's amazing. <laughs> wow. Sorry. So the brick building Ben built is no longer standing. In 1973, it received considerable damage from an earthquake. The county deemed it unsafe and wanted it torn down. It was owned by a fellow named James T. Hall at the time, and it was in the process of being repaired when on August 1st, 1978, it was destroyed by a fire. The fire was believed to have been set by an arsonist who had been paid 500 bucks to burn it down to the ground by a man who had a grudge against Mr. Hall. Yeah, you can see pictures of the building online. Hmm. Kind of sad that it's gone. Yeah, an old one. Mm-hmm. So Ben's hotel, it also did not survive. It too was destroyed by fire, but it was burnt down prior to the building being burnt down. Mm-hmm. The town folks were gathered together for a funeral when Ernest Waldron spotted smoke coming from the building. He said that it was only a very small fire at first, and if there had been some water close by, it could have been easily put out. Everyone in town was running with buckets of water from the nearby well and springs, but there was not enough to stop the fire. Leak, so it just burnt all the way down. Don't you think that most fires start off as a small fire? Yeah, I guess that's true. <laughs> um, it's an interesting report. Well, and also his hotel burnt down after he had died. So both of his buildings were destroyed after he had passed away. So mm. probably fortunate for him to not have to see his hard work get burnt down. Yeah, yeah. or maybe it was his own ghost coming in and burning it. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> he didn't bury his leg right the first time. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah, that's probably it. All right. Well, there you have it, folks. That's our trip to the town of Rock Creek, the Stricker home site tour, and our interesting find in the Samaria Cemetery. Yeah. So we actually stopped at all these spots on our way back from Twin Falls, where we went to visit Lethalita, and she was the start of our podcast, and that was nearly a year ago. Yeah. yeah. Happy anniversary. I know. September 2nd, I think, will be the official <laughs> Our official launch day. Yeah, that's exciting. Mm -hmm. Well, we are so thankful for those of you that have stuck through with us and that have traveled along. Yeah, uh, you give us a reason to keep doing all this stuff. It's a lot of work mm -hmm. and it's a lot of fun. We definitely yeah. enjoy doing this. So thanks for all the support. We appreciate it. Yeah. Um, if you want to see pictures of our travels, we'll be putting them up on our website. At rebelatlarge.com or you can check out our Instagram page at rebelatlarge. Yeah, that's where we're most active for sure. We keep like updates of the van and all that kind of stuff in the hearse when I'm mm -hmm. doing them. So, yep. All right. Well, thanks again, folks. We'll talk to you here in a couple of weeks. Hey, wait. Huh? You didn't let me do my dad joke. You've been doing them the whole show. I know, but I have one, like a specific one. You ready? <clears throat> okay. Okay. When does a farmer dance?
Uh, when? Tell me when. When, when does the our farmer beat dance? Drops. <laughs> I need a mic drop. <laughs> oh no! I think you did it. <laughs> when the beat drops. When the beat drops. <laughs> you never like my jokes. I don't know if anybody likes your jokes. <laughs> I do them for me, okay? <laughs> <laughs> That's all that matters. <laughs> Good God. All righty, folks. Well, hopefully you'll still tune in after that. Of course I will. <laughs> all righty. Safe travels. <laughs> we'll see you all down the road. You were going to say something? I was going to start reading your lines. I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry right now. I don't know what's wrong. So, ready? Yes. After the war, he can... That sounded weird. Mexican-American. I'm so proud of you. You didn't do that. This is going to take so long to edit. I'm so sorry. I feel really bad. I do. Okay. Ready? Ready. Beep. She married Arthur D. Portels. I, I'm sorry, I probably said that wrong. <laughs> married Baron Henry Renaud de Pousset. <laughs> right? Renaud de Poussin. Wow, I was way off. <laughs> Renaud de Poussin. Okay. You know. Married him. Let me try it. Do it. To Lida, Lida. Lydia. Lydia. In July 1865, James Bascom, right? Bascom? Yeah, it doesn't say July anywhere in there, but. Oh, it doesn't? Yeah. Okay, we'll try again. So that's what they did. So you need to do that whole thing over again because you missed like half a line in there. Did I? He worked as a store clerk in Iowa. No, he didn't. <laughs> I, I was like, I know I got this. Wrong. He worked as a store clerk in Ohio. <laughs> that sounds so stupid. Ohio? Okay. He also operated a livery stable. Is it a livery? Yeah.